Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please join me in welcoming back once again, Father Paul Shane. Thank you. It's always a joy. All right, so what uh, an interesting challenge uh, Deacon gave to me. Um, I did not have a lecture on Matthew 2 and its application to Roe versus Wade. So you don't want to know how many hours I've been writing and reading and putting things together, uh, Deacon, but only for Deacon, only for Deacon. Deacon asks, I can't say no. I can't say no. Uh, so now we're going to try this, and um, <clears throat> so I've called the lecture Herod the Horrible, and uh, I want you to see the legacy of this man. Um, and we are going to look at this in relation, part one will be a historical, biblical perspective on Herod and the impact he has had, and then we will look at its implications for public policy in our country today. Herod was a violent and bold man, and very desirous of acting tyrannically. That is Flavius Josephus in Antiquities of the Jews, the 14th volume. The dark and twisted history of Herod the Great is told in detail in uh, Josephus's Antiquities. It is a sorry tale of intense personal ambition, familial dysfunction of magnificent proportion, of intrigue, betrayal, adultery, bribery, and murder. The sniveling, narcissistic, and depraved Herod of Matthew 2 is intertwined with such ancient luminaries as Julius Caesar, Pompey, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Cassius, and Ptolemy. In many ways, Herod was a two-bit warlord, but he nonetheless ingratiated himself to the ruthless rulers of his time and won a dubious place in ancient Middle Eastern history. Josephus carefully chronicles the convoluted path Herod climbed on his way to being made Basileus, king of Judea, by the Romans around 40 BC. His accession to power began when his father, Antipater, 
an Idumean, an Edomite. And uh, <clears throat> when his father took advantage of the defeat of Pompey and became a toady to Julius Caesar's occupational forces, ingratiating himself and in return receiving more and more swaths of Palestine. He made his son, Herod, the governor of Galilee at the ripe old age of 15. When Antipater was murdered by political opponents in 43 BC, Herod, his son, began cajoling, conniving, and clawing his way to kingship, even paying for his own throne with his own ill-gotten gains. Now, <clears throat> I don't mean to suggest to you that Herod was an unsophisticated dolt. To the contrary, Herod was a very sophisticated dolt. <laughs> Bobbing and weaving between competing factions of Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, Syrians, and the Hasmoneans, the compromised, sedentary, and corrupt Jewish revolutionaries, something like the Jewish Castro brothers. Herod kept trading out his loyalties, and he would go with the dictator de jour until he won the plum, Jerusalem. Now, as I said, Herod was a sophisticated, a consummate diplomat, and a very savvy politician. He was despised by the Hasidim, the Orthodox traditionalists, tolerated by the Hellenists, and trusted by the Romans. He was renowned for his massive public works. The late great Israeli archaeologist and Herodian scholar Ehud Netzer described him as a king who lived and breathed the art of construction, deeply understood its ways, and quite simply loved to build. Herod not only built baths, exhibition halls, and desert fortresses, he established entire cities most notably Caesarea, where he made a harbor and erected a metropolis that became the economic center of a resurgent Judea not seen since the days of Solomon. Herod sought to win the loyalty of the Hasidim, who were the spirit of Jerusalem and the custodians of the tradition, by rebuilding and vastly expanding the Temple Mount and in the process making it the largest religious shrine in the Roman world. But he reached too far when he placed the Roman eagle over its gateway, inciting the religious to riot and tear it down. In response, he had them rounded up and burned alive. So much for diplomacy. 
but he was able to maintain power and ruled for 37 years. He is a tormented study in contrasts and contradictions in many ways, a typical politician. Now I know, I know, I haven't yet answered the question that has been nagging at you forever. No matter where you've been, what you've been doing, what your station has been in life, it just keeps gnawing at you. The question that you've got to get settled once for all, you've got to get the answer, was Herod Jewish? I know how much this has bothered you, <laughs> troubled you. So I'm making my best effort tonight to answer that question. So let me put it simply. The answer is not so much. <laughs> Herod was the anti-Maccabee. Judah Maccabee and his brothers of Hanukkah fame fought against Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian despot who had made himself not king, but God, and had decreed that the Jews must adopt Greek culture and religion on pain of death. Not to say there's anything wrong with Greek culture or religion. Uh, but just don't force it down our throats. You know what I'm saying? Now, the Maccabees wrested Jerusalem and the temple from the Syrians and established the third Judean kingdom. Sadly, though Jews do not believe in original sin, they nonetheless practice it. And within a generation the political descendants of the Maccabees had become corrupt, self-serving chieftains double-dealing with Israel's sworn enemies. Herod learned to play that game. A world-class suck-up, he adopted the effete manners of the worst in Hellenism, dressing, acting, and worshiping like a Greco-Roman pagan in Paeus. You know what payas are? Okay, they're the side locks. You don't, the Torah says you don't take a razor to the sides of your head. So you have the payas. Okay? So let me run it by you again. <laughs> worshiping, looking like, dressing, acting, and worshiping like a Greco-Roman pagan in payas. See, now it's funny. <laughs> Once I explain it to you. Herod uh, banished the first of his ten wives carried on openly with his sister-in-law and had his own sons and their mother strangled when he felt they threatened his prestige. His religious pretensions led the Roman philosopher Macrobius to opine, Tutsius est Herodis porcum esse quam filium. It is safer to be Herod's pig than his son. We have seen that Herod was a shrewd politician and diplomat. In his construction of the secular Caesarea and the spiritual center on the Temple Mount, he created a secular spiritual divide. 
a contrived but nonetheless effective separation of church, well, temple, and state. And this gave him permission to engage in serial impiety, as Josephus puts it, and blasphemies, orgies, baths, and blood sports, while at the same time finding the cover of religion. Herod played the Jew. That's not, I don't think I want that up there. No. Goodness gracious. There. What have I done? All right, let me start again. Herod played the Jew when it served his purpose, though he couldn't claim to be Jewish in the Pharisaical sense. His father was Idumean, Edomite, and his mother either Arab or Samaritan. So he was a poser on so many levels, which brings us then to the heinous and unspeakable murder of the Bethlehem babies attributed to him by St. Matthew. The Byzantine majority text uh, has it uh, in the Greek that the Magi uh, had come and they had uh, inquired about the one who was to be born king of the Jews, uh, but a good translation, a more modern translation, two of them actually, one came from Israel, um, has it king of the Judeans. Now, make this careful distinction in your mind, um, because Judea is a Roman, um, is a, is a uh, Roman jurisdiction, and uh, it was very important to Herod that he had the designation of king of Judea. This was the political division, not the religious. Herod never claimed to be the religious king. He was a politician through and through. And so he is threatened by this inquiry not on a religious plane. Do you see that? He's, he is uh, threatened purely on a political uh, plane. Uh, so he, he misunderstands the mission. Does that surprise you that Herod would misunderstand something religious? He misunderstands the mission of the Magi. We're, we'll get back to this in a moment. I'm kind of rushing ahead of myself here. Um, because they are on the spiritual mission. He sees it as purely a political claim. Uh, I was in Israel. Uh, my wife and I were uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, we had left our babies behind. We had left our uh, 
three-year-old daughter and our one-year-old son with grandma and grandpa. And we were in Israel. Um, and we, 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 we couldn't enjoy the Temple Mount. We couldn't enjoy the shrines. We couldn't enjoy the Galilee. <laughs> we were just pining away for our kids. And so we went for a walk one day in Jerusalem, and we went to a, a kindergarten playground. Um, and uh, uh, there was a man there with his little children on swings, and he was sitting on a rock, and we got uh, chatting with each other. And uh, I asked him what he did, and he said, oh, I, he was an American expat, and he's living in Israel. And he said, oh, I'm, uh, I, I, I do some literary work. What do you do? I translate. What do you translate? I translate the Bible. Oh, you're a Bible translator, so that's why you're here. And 27 years later, the, Jewish, the complete Jewish Bible comes out. David Rosen, the man I was chatting with in the, uh, in, with, with the, in the playground. And he's been very, he, he was, in translating the New Testament, keep in mind that the New Testament is published in Hebrew in Israel and read in every public school. Every public school student studies the New Testament in Israel. Shame on us. Shame on us. Uh, and uh, so... Um, uh, so in translating the New Testament from Hebrew, very careful uh, to make this distinction between Jews and Judeans. Judeans is a political designation. Um, and uh, this is part of the remedy of the difficult passages in John also that make us wince. But that's another lecture. So we can't go there now. But let's go back now to the text of Matthew 2. And uh, do you, you have my time signals for me, deacon? All right, very good. Telling secrets, the secrets of the deacon. <laughs> then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, only St. Matthew records this shocking and despicable occurrence, and this has led more than one scholar to question its authenticity. It is not an invalid question. In fact, it's a rather reasonable one. At least with the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have reason to think they derive from a single source, a logia, an early oral tradition that was a compilation of Jesus' sayings and stories. If the three Gospels are drawn from the same sources, or at least contain the same body of material, why is this only in Matthew? And Josephus doesn't reference it either. Geza Vermes, E.P. Sanders, and even Father Raymond Brown either outright say or suggest that Matthew conjured this story to support his suggestion 
that Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies of Hosea, Micah, and Jeremiah. Now these are substantial scholars. Never mind Sanders is a non-Christian, Vermes an apostate, and Brown a Sulpician. <laughs> Still, all excellent New Testament scholars. So if they're doubtful, shouldn't we be? I think not. And here's my reason why, and it's a good one. Make note of it. First of all, Herod's horrible reputation. Recall Josephus' contemporaneous description of him. Herod was a violent and bold man and very desirous of acting tyrannically. Herod attacked children more than once. Not the least was his own two sons, whom he suspected of challenging his credibility and rightful heir to the Judean throne. And he, they, he had the mother murdered too. So the massacre of innocence fits a pattern. Secondly, while subsequent unhistorical and uncritical interpretations of the massacre ballooned the number of children murdered, the population of Bethlehem at the time would indicate no more than perhaps two dozen. Two dozen, far too many, but far less than the tens of thousands of medieval renditions. Lastly, for our purposes tonight, Matthew had a peculiar mission not shared by the other evangelists. In publishing his Evangelion, his gospel was written for the Jews and especially for the Judean Jews and in particular for the Hasidim. Saint Irenaeus in his uh, Apologia Against Heresies, reports this. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, a companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So here we have uh, what was clearly a firm tradition in the early sub-apostolic church. Uh, Origen also related this same tradition in his commentary on Matthew, stating, concerning the four gospels which alone are uncontroverted in the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the gospel according to Matthew who was at one time a publican and afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, was written first, 
in that he composed it in the Hebrew tongue and published it for the converts from Judaism. And Eusebius reiterates the same tradition when he writes, Matthew, who had first preached to the Hebrews when he was about to go to other peoples, committed his gospel to writing in his native tongue and thus compensated those whom he was obliged to leave for the loss uh, uh, to uh, leave for the loss of his presence so this is sufficient testimony to verify that Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew actually a dialect of Hebrew which would have been Aramaic at the time Syriac Aramaic I know there's a controversy over this I know you're going to bring that up was not Syriac Aramaic, it was Galilean Aramaic. There's a very nuanced but distinct difference between the two of them. I know this. I'm coming down on the side of Syriac Aramaic. That's it. I'm finished. We're not discussing it. <laughs> so he published his gospel first for the Jews, Jewish Christians in Palestine, and especially the Judean Jews. Now, given the record of political violence and murder at the time, the relatively small size of Bethlehem and the relatively few children killed, this event would not have been widely noticed. At most, it would have been just another incident among many, and at that, it would have been keenly abhorred by the Jews of Bethlehem and really nobody else. This was a very vicious and violent time. So the massacre of the Bethlehem babies, the Holy Innocents, was a tragedy of concern to the Jews of Bethlehem and Judea, Matthew's target audience. Matthew interprets the tragedy in the light of messianic prophecy and covenantal credibility. He first casts the light of revelation on it. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will govern my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, say, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Matthew demonstrates that the whole event has its origins in the prophets. This is essential because Matthew is demonstrating that this is not a meaningless loss of innocent life, but a divine intervention that is rife with salvific and eternal meaning. Another theme of interest to the Jews, but not so much to others, is the correlation between Moses and Jesus. We read this in the Torah. In um, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, in verse 10, which says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses stood out. His Hebrew title is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher. Moses is regarded as the founder of Israel and the greatest prophet that ever lived. Now, we know the story. 
Pharaoh felt threatened by the Israelites and ordered that all the male newborns be killed at birth. The Hebrew midwives tried to save their lives. Moses was among them. Hidden in the bulrushes, he was found by the Pharaoh's daughter, surreptitiously returned to his mother, and raised in Pharaoh's palace. This is all told in Exodus 1 and 2. That Moses miraculously survived the order to slaughter the innocents is a powerful and pervasive theme in Jewish tradition and is told again and again in the religiously definitive Passover Haggadah, which serves as Israel's constitution. The parallel is deliberate and strategic. Jesus survives Herod's order to slaughter the innocents in Egypt. When Herod, the prophetic Pharaoh, dies, Jesus returns with his tribe to Judea. In this way, he is shown to be the greater Moses. That he is the prophet greater than Moses is essential to the Jews Matthew is writing to, but not the Greeks or Romans in Mark, Luke, or John's audiences. One more point on Matthew 2. The Magi cannot be overlooked or underappreciated in this context. They're identified as Magi from the East. The East, uh, which in Hebrew is Hamitra, uh, but is Medineha in Aramaic, represents the tradition. In the Second Temple period, after the Golut, the exile, the East no longer referred to Jerusalem, but Babylon. Since the exile, Babylon was the locus of the great rabbinical schools, and it is from there that the interpretation, uh, the hapashranot, uh, came. The uh, greater of the two Talmuds is the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, and the lesser, the Talmud Yerushalmi, rather, the Jerusalem Talmud. So the mysterious three men, Mamitra, from the east, come with the inspired interpretation in contrast to Herod's false interpretation of his lineage of kingship. These three bring the true interpretation. Now, just a couple of uh, notes here. This is, uh, this is invocative of Deuteronomy 17.6, which requires three witnesses to achieve a judgment in a capital case. Oh, pardon me. There are the three witnesses. Uh, the defendant and at least two witnesses, two others. So Herod would order the killing of the children on his own idiosyncratic, autocratic testimony, not only a moral, but a technical violation of the Torah. St. Paul expands on this idea in 2 Corinthians 13.1, where he says, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a fact shall be established. But even more evocative is an allusion to the three mysterious visitors to Abraham in Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oak of Mamre as he sat in the entrance of his tent while the day was growing hot. Looking up, he saw three men standing near him. 
When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them and bowed to the ground. Abraham prostrated himself before the Lord, which would have been ad orientum. This scenario would have the mysterious visitors approaching Abraham's tent from the east. As to Rachel weeping, this is more messianic fulfillment. Proof again of Jesus' infancy ordeal was the prologue uh, to the Messiah. But Rachel weeping brings an intensely personal dimension to an otherwise sterile theological topic. The death of the children is especially bitter, not because they were prophetic augurs, but because they were children. There is no bitter death, and especially murder, than that of one's youngest child. Recall Sandy Hook Elementary School. We'll break there. One of the true marks of the apostles, what sets them apart, the apostles of our Lord, is that they turn the world upside down without a microphone. It's one of the true marks of the apostles. There are no slides for the second part. I'm sorry, but uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, I am a supply priest in my diocese. I'm not attached to a, um, a parish, so I go wherever a priest is needed. And uh, this weekend, oy, was I needed. <laughs> I was in one... Two, th between Friday and, and today, I was in one, two, three, four, five, five parishes or um, re uh, a retreat day for, um, for uh, marriage preparation. Anyway, uh, so I was circulating all over. I, uh, and I told Melanie, I'll, I'll get as many slides to you as I can, but that was the end of that. So we'll, we'll, leave, our, we'll leave the Magi up, all right? So, notice the stark contrast between the Magi kings and Herod the king. Herod sees the promised child as a threat. He's afraid that the coming baby will crimp his style, will challenge his power, compromise his credibility, and lower his status. The Magi see the promised child as a wonderful gift. They've humbled themselves to travel a great distance to a strange culture that speaks a different language, which looks and acts differently, in order to embrace this baby who fulfills God's love. We're speaking of the very same child, but look at the difference in perception between the two. Herod's selfishness, fueled by his fears, leads to his downfall. The Magi's worship, inspired by the prophets, leads to the salvation of all the nations. The gift of eternal life is offered to the peoples of the world through the birth of the little child. 
the gift of human life, the greatest gift anyone can ever receive, is still being offered to us in each and every child born of every race, of each gender, country, and every culture. And in this liturgical season, we celebrate God's great gift revealed to the world in the babe of Bethlehem, and we celebrate the great gift of humanity re re that is revealed to the world in each and every child, no matter who they are or where they come from. Which brings us to the application of Matthew 2 to today. Is a Herodian spirit behind Roe v. Wade and its demonic progeny? While campaigning for the Democratic nomination, then-Senator Hillary Clinton, you're going, oh, he's going to go political. <laughs> Hold on. Let me finish. Senator Hillary Clinton came to American University, and she said, and I quote, abortion should be safe, legal, and very, very, very rare. Three varies. Why three varies? Very, very, very rare. In a defining speech on abortion, she also said, and I quote, there is no reason why government cannot do more to educate and inform and provide assistance so that the choice guaranteed under our Constitution either does not ever have to be exercised or only in very rare circumstances." End quote. Now, if abortion is a constitutional right, just like freedom of speech, or the press, or assembly, or due process, why should it be very, very, very rare? Should free speech be very, very, very rare? Should freedom of the press be very, very, very rare? Should due process of law be very, very, very rare? No, that's absurd. So what was Senator Clinton saying? She was revealing that she herself knows there is something terribly wrong with abortion. In an attempt to understand the current moral conundrum and the political impasse on abortion policy, we need to look at various interpretations of the situation. And I'll begin with the late Governor Mario Cuomo's address on religious belief and public morality, a Catholic governor's perspective, delivered September 13, 1984, at the University of Notre Dame in the Department of Theology. According to the recent eulogies, Cuomo is considered the quintessential liberal interpreter. I heard this speech, um, or portions of it, on the news. I was a constituent in New York at the time, 1984, and I remember picking up the phone and calling Governor Cuomo's secretary, who took my call. I was nobody. I was a schmo from Buffalo. 
but she took the call. And I, this was the morning after the evening he had given this lecture at, uh, at Notre Dame. And I, I didn't catch all of it. I had snippets of it. And I said, uh, I'd like a copy of the governor's uh, speech. Where can I get one? And she said, just a moment, just a moment. You know, that was when phones actually were tethered, you know, and <laughs> things had to drop, and then you had to go back and then pick it up again, and you had all this noise that was characteristic of that community. You remember that, right? Big, heavy phones that were tied to things. And Anyway, so she came back and she said, the, the governor said that he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he only has his own copy. And I said, well, you know, is it going to be published? Can I get a transcript of it? She said, no, he said you can have his notes. So I'm going to make a photocopy, send them to you in the mail today. And I got them. I got the governor's notes with his handwriting and everything in it. So I had a copy of that. Um, I have not framed it and don't intend to. So... Um, the lecture deserves our attention in its entirety, but it's entirely too long for our consideration here. But I think the following excerpt catches the gist of his pragmatic political position on abortion. So bear with me. It's about four paragraphs. And I'm quoting. So I don't want you to think this is anything coming from me. I'm reading uh, the late governor's notes, and I'll tell you when I'm finished. So I'm now beginning. As Catholics, my wife and I were enjoined never to use abortion to destroy the life we created and we never have. We thought church doctrine was clear on this, and more than that, both of us felt it in full agreement with what our hearts and our consciences told us. For me, life or fetal life in the womb should be protected, even if five of the nine justices of the Supreme Court and my neighbor disagree with me. A fetus is different from an appendix or a set of tonsils. At the very least, even if the argument is made by some scientists or some theologians that in the early stages of fetal development we can't discern human life, the full potential of human life is indisputably there. That to my less subtle mind, by itself should demand respect, caution, indeed reverence. But not everyone in our society agrees with me and Matilda. And those who don't, those who endorse legalized abortions, aren't a ruthless, callous alliance of anti-Christians determined to overthrow our moral standards. In many cases, the proponents of legal abortion are the very people who have worked with Catholics to realize the goals of social justice set out in papal encyclicals. The American Lutheran Church, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, B'nai B'rith Women, and the Women of the Episcopal Church. These are just a few of the religious organizations that don't share the Church's position on abortion. Certainly, we should not be forced to mold Catholic morality to conform to disagreement by non-Catholics, however sincere or severe their disagreement. Our bishops should be teachers, not pollsters. They should not change what we Catholics believe in order to ease our consciences or please our friends or protect the Church from criticism. But if the breadth, intensity, and sincerity of opposition to Church teaching shouldn't be allowed to shape our Catholic morality, it can't help but determine our ability, our realistic political ability, to translate our Catholic morality into civil law.
a law not for the believers who don't need it, but for the disbelievers who reject it. And it is here, in our attempt to find a political answer to abortion, an answer beyond our private observance of Catholic morality, that we encounter controversy within and without the Church over how and in what degree to press the case that our morality should be everybody else's and to what effect. I repeat, there is no Church teaching that mandates the best political course for making our belief everyone's rule, for spreading this part of our Catholicism. There is neither an encyclical nor a catechism that spells out a political strategy for achieving legislative goals. And so the Catholic trying to make moral and prudent judgments in the political realm must discern which, if any, of the actions one could take would be best. This latitude of judgment is not something new in the Church, not a development that has arisen only with the abortion issue. Take, for example, the question of slavery. Get ready. That was my notation. That was not the, the governor's words. Back to the governor's words. It has been argued that the failure to endorse a legal ban on abortions is equivalent to refusing to support the cause of abolition before the Civil War. This analogy has been advanced by the bishops of my own state. But the truth of the matter is, few, if any, Catholic bishops spoke for abolition in the years before the Civil War. It wasn't, I believe, that the bishops endorsed the idea of some humans owning and exploiting other humans. Pope Gregory XVI in 1840 had condemned the slave trade. Instead, it was a practical political judgment that the bishops made. They weren't hypocrites, they were realists. At the time, Catholics were a small minority, mostly immigrant, despised by much of the population, often vilified, and the object of sporadic violence. In the face of a public controversy that aroused tremendous passion and threatened to break the country apart, the bishops made a pragmatic decision. They believed their opinion would not change people's minds. Moreover, they knew that there were Southern Catholics, even some priests, who owned slaves. They concluded that under the circumstances, arguing for a constitutional amendment against slavery would do more harm than good, so they were silent. As they have been generally in recent years, remember he's, writing in 80, he's speaking in 84, on the question of birth control. And as the church has been on even more controversial issues in the past, even ones that dealt with life and death. What is relevant to this discussion is that the bishops were making judgments about translating Catholic teachings into public policy, not about the moral validity of those teachings. In so doing, they grappled with the unique political complexities of their time. The decision they made to remain silent on a constitutional amendment to abolish slavery or on the repeal of the Fugitive Slave Law wasn't a mark of their moral indifference. It was a measured attempt to balance moral truths against political realities. Their decision reflected their sense of complexity, not their diffidence. The parallel I want to draw is not between or among what we Catholics believe to be moral wrongs. It is in the Catholic response to those wrongs. Church teaching on slavery and abortion is clear, but in the application of those teachings, the way we translate them into action, the specific laws we propose, the exact legal sanctions we seek, there was and is no clear, absolute route that the Church says, as a matter of doctrine, must be followed. End of Governor Cuomo's. I wanted you to hear all of that because that is a very uh, prevalent engine in political interpretation 
of the conundrum on abortion. Okay, that's why I wanted you to hear that. And uh, many of those still uh, who are framing the liberal response, and I'm talking about politically liberal, I'm talking about religiously liberal, I'm not talking about uh, anything other than political, um, the political liberal cast. And I know that there's a distinction being made between progressives and liberals, and never mind, we're not going to go there, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but just to go back to the, um, that era, and many of those people are, Nancy Pelosi is one of them, are still in place. Okay, so I just wanted to, that's why I wanted to hear this. Because I think Cuomo gave an honest and realistic explanation of this liberal political attitude towards abortion policy, which probably also explains Clinton's incongruity. I remember ABC News anchor Ted Koppel interviewing Cuomo the night of the speech on Nightline uh, and being somewhat perplexed by Cuomo's analogy with slavery. Koppel got what Cuomo was saying and in fact challenged him. Was the governor saying that 150 years earlier he would have been silent about slavery and may even have opposed abolitionism? Cuomo was honest enough to say probably yes. What was so telling about this speech in the interview was that Cuomo put abortion in at least as bad a moral light as slavery and government complicity with it. That a liberal icon of Cuomo's stature would do that and still go on to endorse a policy of unfettered abortion was stunning and still is. And that took Koppel by surprise. Now this is not to say that Cuomo's position was unique. It was just dead level, it was a dead level appraisal uh, of that position that, uh, and it was at least um, <clears throat> it, 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 was, it was at least an explanation. Cuomo's position is actually a common one, especially with Catholics in public office. As to judicial opinions, especially from the U.S. Supreme Court, a similarly honest and forthright explanation of abortion began to emerge with the Stenberg versus Carhartt decision of 2000. The decision is the first in a series to actually describe in disturbing detail how a child is killed in an abortion. The majority opinion acknowledges the revulsion most readers of the opinion would sense. The majority forewarns, and this is from the slip opinion, and I quote, considering the fact that those procedures seek to terminate a potential human life, our discussion may seem clinically cold or callous to some, perhaps horrifying to others." End quote. Indeed, Justice Kennedy, in his dissent in Stenberg versus Carhartt, wrote this, quote, the state chose to forbid a procedure many decent and civilized people find so abhorrent as to be among the most serious of crimes against human life. While the state still protected the woman's autonomous right of choice, as reaffirmed in Casey, the court closes its eyes to these profound concerns. From the decision, the reasoning, and the judgment I dissent. 
In this regard, Justice Kennedy finds no legitimacy in the decision of the court upholding partial birth abortions. The Carhartt decision was overturned in 2007, something very widely missed by the population and the media. In the case Gonzalez v. Carhartt, with Justice Kennedy now writing for the majority, in stating the purpose of the law prohibiting partial birth abortion, he wrote, and I quote, this is from the opinion, uh, this is Gonzalez v. Carhartt, 2007, April 17th. The act's stated purposes are protecting innocent human life from a brutal and inhumane procedure and protecting the medical community's ethics and reputation. Close quote. As well, he wrote, quote, the act also, rec the act, by the way, refers to the legislation prohibiting um, partial birth abortion. The act also recognizes that respect for human life finds an ultimate expression in a mother's love for her child, end quote. This uh, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, Gonzalez v. Planned Parenthood, it was a consolidated opinion is extremely powerful. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend that you do. These two opinions. Very, very important. In fact, so important that I took the slip opinion when it came down and I went out in front of the Planned Parenthood abortion mills and I read it aloud uh, in front of the mill, at, at, you know, into the mill, into the Planned Parenthood abortion business. I read the opinion. I got arrested. Um, <laughs> So when I got arrested and I was taken down to the, to the, um, to the uh, precinct, uh, I was taken down by a, a plainclothes detective, and uh, he, he, he handcuffed me to the, to the bench in, while he was processing the paperwork. And uh, I, I was trying to, I, I, I said, gentlemen, I, I, called, I called the attention of the, all the officers and, and people working in the, in the I said, have you read the opinion from the Supreme Court in Carhartt versus, uh, in Gonzales v. Carhartt, Gonzales v. Planned Parenthood? And they looked up, no. I said, well, let me read it to you. <laughs> so, so I read aloud uh, through the whole proceeding, and, and, the, and the, one of the officers was so kind to come over and unlock me so that I could manage the books better, you know, because I had to do it with one hand, turning pages. And, so he unlocked me, uh, unhandcuffed me, and so I, I read it aloud, and we had a reading of the whole opinion uh, that day in the precinct. And uh, when I processed my paperwork, he said, oh, he, he said, he charged you with a misdemeanor. I, I, I wrote it down to a violation, $50 fine. You can pay it or not. So <laughs> as I walked out, I walked out with, a, with uh, uh, the, the officers standing in a row thanking me, personally thanking me, shaking my hand and saying thank you. We, I, several of them said, at least three of them spoke and said, no idea, had no idea, thank you. It, it empowered them to know that the Supreme Court had written of abortion in this way. Now, <clears throat> While affirming the change of language in the law, the act, from unborn child to living fetus, um, 
after the original Nebraska law was struck down, they changed the language from unborn child to living fetus. And it passed. But even acknowledging that, um, the opinion still acknowledges a moral equivalency between unborn child and living fetus. So whereas Roe v. Wade basically says, now I'm characterizing it, we don't know what is in the womb and it is unknowable. If you read Roe v. Wade, that's, that's, that's what Roe says. We don't know what is in the womb and it is unknowable. Uh, now both in the opinion and in the dissents it says if we ever come to know what's in the womb, then this whole scheme falls apart. Roe acknowledges that. Right in, the, right, in the, uh, right in the opinion. It says if we ever come to know this, um, then this whole thing falls apart. It can't stand. So even though, it, even though the Gonzalez v. Carhartt decision acknowledges this change of language, it still establishes the moral equivalency. So whereas Roe says we don't know, Gonzalez says we know what is in the womb and it is knowable. And then the opinion uses three very important uh, terms. Living human organism, innocent human life, and unborn child, quoting the previous act, and then making the equivalency to living fetus. Okay? It's a very important opinion. Now, another position worth mentioning is the current president's campaign position that he would work and I quote, to greatly reduce the number of abortions. Again, why? If abortion is a constitutional right, a personal liberty concern, why would the president work to reduce it? Would he reduce freedom of speech? Don't answer that. <laughs> would he reduce freedom of the press, religion, peaceably, uh, peaceable assembly, the right to petition government? then why abortion? Because the president knows, as does Hillary Clinton, as does the Supreme Court, as does the Congress, that abortion is illegitimate, undesirable, and detrimental to the individuals and the common good. What we have then is a kind of Herodian illusion. Because the powerful decree something to be so doesn't make it so. Herod asserted on no other authority than his own hubris and self-delusion, that he was the legitimate heir to the Jewish throne, and all other claimants were dangerous threats to the social order. Public proponents of abortion today, as Governor Cuomo pointed out, assert a fallacy on no more authority than pragmatism and self-interest, their own, their constituents, or both. Furthermore, these pro-abortion powers are not satisfied with the retaining of the heinous act for themselves. They must thrust it upon their subjects with threats of retaliation for rejecting it, public derision, disqualification, banishment, punishing fines, deprivation of rights, and imprisonment. These draconian measures have lately been mitigated by the courts, but the threat remains. Like Herod, some of the most ardent proponents of abortion have been practitioners of it and profiteers from it. Planned Parenthood Federation comes to mind. 
For all his florid rhetoric, Governor Mario Cuomo dispatched foreboding armored assault vehicles against peaceful pro-life sidewalk counselors and demonstrators well known to be nonviolent when they were only singing and praying. Why? You tell me. The Clinton Justice Department convened scores of sham federal grand juries across the country, subpoenaing church donor records, pregnancy center volunteers, confiscating church computers, and uh, bringing conscientious pro-life citizens to assemble reams of personal financial records, correspondence, and appear to give sworn testimony. But those grand juries never produced a single indictment. Why? Intimidation. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 and to its moving depiction of the bereaved mothers of the innocents. Then was fulfilled what had been said through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, sobbing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be consoled since they were no more. The words of this haunting prophecy arise from the lamentation imagined by the prophet Jeremiah who was witness to the utter devastation of his beloved Jerusalem, the city besieged, sacked, pillaged, and the women raped, the children taken as slaves, the prophet sees in his mind's eye Jacob's wife, the mother of Israel, as her plaintive wail pierces the night darkness and can be felt in Ramah more than five miles away. The whole region is engulfed in misery. There is no more pain than a mother whose child has been murdered. In a survey of over 100 women who had suffered from post-abortion trauma, fully 80% expressed feelings of self-hatred. In the same study, 49% reported that they had be, uh, begun to use or increase their use of drugs, and 39% began to use or increase their use of alcohol. Approximately 14% described themselves as having become addicted or alcoholic after the abortion. In addition, 60% reported suicidal ideation, with 28% actually attempting suicide, of which half attempted suicide two or more times. Suicide counseling services have reported that an exceptionally high number of their clients are aborted women, especially among women between the ages of 15 and 24. Post-abortion trauma is eating up the Roe v. Wade generation. While Harrod is campaigning, schmoozing, and building, Rachel can be heard howling in Rama. It's time to call Harrod 
the fox that he is. Amen. Father, can, can we see a parallel to or a type of the holy innocence in the Babylonian children in Psalm 136 or 137? Well, yes, and that's what I meant. Uh, I think that's an excellent, uh, an excellent uh, reference because th this, this was not... It, it, the Bethlehem uh, slaughter is unique because it's only in Matthew. But it's not a unique event at that time or if in the whole corpus of Scripture. Um, you know, th this is so profoundly sad that how much time do we want to spend with it? But if we go through Scripture, the attack on children is, is prevalent. And it happens in different places, different generations. Um, and, and pardon me, but even, even tearing the children from the womb, one of the acts of violence in, 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 in the warfare of the time was to, um, was to rip the children out of the womb and, then, and murder them. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a depraved act to so frighten um, and so uh, uh, humiliate, break the spirit of the of the uh, of your opponent, that these things were done. So, um, you know, the idea that. It, so I, I I think that's. Did you have something more than that in mind with well, the, the psalm? Positively of dashing the Babylonian children against the rocks. Yes, and. Uh, Unfortunately, that, is, that was a condition uh, at the time. And, and these are painful things for us to, to read about. This was the kind of combat and warfare that took place. It was savage, and it was, um, it, it, it was horrendous. Keep in mind, too, that in that same context, the very same context that the psalm refers to the dashing of the children against the rocks, that uh, there, that... Uh, you also have Israelites who are um, cannibalizing too. It's it's a it's a depraved condition that just descends on that kind of um, violent warfare of the time. But we see it repeated again now. In, in in one of the things that disturbed me deeply about doing the research for this just for this topic tonight was when I was trying to grab images under these words. I kept bringing up images of the dead victim children in the violence in the Middle East. Not just Syria, not just Iraq, but Gaza um, as well. And uh, it's, it's, of course, one of the horrors of, of vicious warfare. And it's something we want to disengage from. Because it's written in the words of Scripture, and even because it's, it's referenced even in a, almost a celebrative manner, does still does not make it right and 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 it's something that we want to revive you know it's 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 something that we 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 need to to uh um reject and uh and and grow away from some of the violent language of scripture is 
we, we have to, we can't excuse it away. It was real. It was part of the context of the time. It was part of the vicious warfare. Still is today as we see it. And it's something obviously that we don't want to um, endorse. Um, yeah, there's a whole string of this in scripture, both from the Israelite and from the, the, uh, the enemy point of view as well. Yeah. Father, thank you very much for your excellent talk. Uh, if I could expand the, the subject a little bit, do you think that the uh, abortion proponents are part of a larger movement in the United States uh, for euthanasia, contraception, requiring people who don't believe in contraception to pay for it, uh, things like this. Um, is this some kind of a movement uh, to eliminate religion from the public life and uh, to virtually take over the government uh, and use it as a, a means to suppress religion? I, I've even heard one quote from one federal justice, not Supreme Court, but I think one of the lower courts, who said in the discussion on uh, requiring uh, Catholics and others who don't believe in contraception to pay for Obamacare, which requires uh, contraception to be paid for, uh, he said, this is the price you pay for citizenship. Uh, do you think this is the way that the, the U.S. is going? And well, there's no question that that is a frame of, of thought. In fact, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the, the, um, uh, the panel, not the full court on banc, the full court on banc um, wound up reversing, but the, but the panel of the Ninth Circuit actually rested its, um, its finding that uh, physician-assisted suicide, or as some have more accurately described it, um, physician-prescribed death, um, was constitutional on the basis of Roe v. Wade. Uh, the Ninth Circuit panel used Roe v. Wade to say that, uh, to, to justify physician-prescribed death. Um, so th th this is very much a strain of thought. Now, speaking of that um, secular ideology, um, I, I quipped, but this actually happened. I, I, was at the, I was in the court for the argument in um, Hill versus Colorado. And uh, uh, we've been in the court enough. I know how to get out of the court and down the stairs and to the microphones before anybody else. Well, <laughs> not in front of my, not, not ahead of my brother. He's the only one who get ahead, get much, get there first. But I can usually come up behind him and, and uh, take the mic. So I got out of the court, got before the microphones outside before anybody else did, and I was, I was critiquing the oral argument, and um, one of the Colorado senators who had um, brought this case to the court um, became very indignant that the fact that I was speaking first, and she pushed me out of the way, which is assault and battery, but I'm, you know, I'm not gonna press charges, but anyway, and she said, Reverend Shank sh should not lecture me on the First Amendment. I'm an old civil liberties lawyer. And so I, I, I didn't push her, but I kind of man maneuvered back into position. And I said, I know it's your First Amendment and we can't have it. 
Um, and that is, uh, that, is a, 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 that is a very prominent secular mindset, which is um, we have freedom of speech, ideas, beliefs, but you don't. Um, and the courts are used constantly uh, for this. Now, the courts, I must say, have been, um, have been good about the First Amendment in this regard recently, in recent years, and there's been a check on that. The threat is still there, that impulse is still there uh, to shut down the opposition, uh, and it's constantly invoked, but so far the courts have really stemmed what authorities can do in stifling, uh, stifling our, our, our speech. Um, with regard to uh, paying for Obamacare, you know, a tax is a tax, even when the taxers say it's not a tax. I, I was in the court for that oral argument, and I, I, I was very confused. But anyway, yes. Father, if the Roman authorities reserved the right of capital punishment to themselves, how did the Herods get away with slaughtering the innocents and executing John the Baptist? Um, keep, keep the borders in our, in our possession, and, you know, we look the other way. Uh, Judea was looked at, if you read, if you read uh, Roman documents on Judea, it was looked at as um, kind of the Afghanistan of Rome. Um, that was very, that was, that was uh, you know, uh, that was an unfair perception. But it was kind of looked at like that. Um, so when uh, imposing Roman order was in Rome's interest, fine. When not, you know, as long as you keep the tribute money coming and you keep, you don't lose the ground, what are we going to do? Look the other way. You know, the more things change, the more they remain the same, right? Thank you very much, Mother Paul. All right, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.